Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to artists. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to Germans. He was young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. And being young, handsome and eloquent, he was beloved. He was an orphan under the guardianship of his dead father's brother, his uncle Wilhelm, in whose house he had been brought up from a little child. And she who loved him was his cousin, his cousin Gertrude, whom he swore he loved in return. Did he love her? Yes, when he first swore it, and soon wore out this passionate love. How threadbare and wretched a sentiment it became at last in the selfish heart of the student. But in its golden dawn, when he was only nineteen, and had just returned from his apprenticeship to a great painter at Antwerp, and they wandered together in the most romantic outskirts of the city at rosy sunset by holy moonlight, or bright and joyous morning. How beautiful a dream. They kept it a secret from Wilhelm, as he has the father's ambition of a wealthy suitor for his only child, a cold and dreary vision beside the lover's dream. So they are betrothed, and standing side by side when the dying sun and the pale rising moon divide the heavens, he puts the betrothal ring upon her finger, the white and taper finger, whose slender shape he knows so well. This ring is a peculiar one, a massive golden serpent, its tail in its mouth, the symbol of eternity. It had been his mother's, and he would know it amongst a thousand. If he were to become blind tomorrow, he could select it from amongst a thousand by the touch alone. He places it on her finger, and they swear to be true to each other forever and ever, through trouble and danger, sorrow and change, in wealth or poverty. Her father must needs be one to consent to their union by and by, for they were now betrothed, and death alone could part them. But the young student, the scoffer at revelation, yet the enthusiastic adorer of the mystical, asks, Can death part us? I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back to be near my love, and you, you, if you died before me, the cold earth would not hold you from me. If you loved me, you would return, and again these fair arms would be clasped round my neck as they are now. But she told him, with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shone in his, she told him that the dead who die at peace with God are happy in heaven and cannot return to the troubled earth, and that it is only the suicide lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, whose unholy spirit haunts the footsteps of the living. The first year of their betrothal is past, and she is alone, for he has gone to Italy on a commission for some rich man to copy Raphael's, Titian's, Guido's in a gallery at Florence. He has gone to win fame, perhaps, but it is not the less bitter. He is gone. Of course, her father misses his young nephew, who has been as a son to him, 
and he thinks his daughter's sadness no more than a cousin should feel for a cousin's absence. In the meantime, the weeks and months pass. The lover writes, often at first, then seldom, at last, not at all. How many excuses she invents for him, how many times she goes to the distant little post office to which he is to address his letters, how many times she hopes only to be disappointed, how many times she despairs only to hope again. But real despair comes at last and will not be put off any more. The rich suitor appears on the scene and the father is determined. She is to marry at once. The wedding day is fixed, the 15th of June. The date seems to burn into her brain. The date, written in fire, dances forever before her eyes. The date, shrieked by the furies, sounds continually in her ears. But there is time yet. It is the middle of May. There is time for a letter to reach him at Florence. There is time for him to come to Brunswick, to take her away and marry her in spite of her father, in spite of the whole world. But the days and the weeks fly by, and he does not write. He does not come. This is indeed despair which usurps her heart and will not be put away. It is the 14th of June. For the last time she goes to the little post office. For the last time she asked the old question, and they give her for the last time the dreary answer. No, no letter. For the last time. For tomorrow is the day appointed for the bridal. Her father will bear no entreaties. Her rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. They will not be put off a day, an hour. Tonight alone is hers. This night, which she may employ as she will. She takes another path than that which leads home. She hurries through some by-streets of the city, out onto a lonely bridge, where he and she had stood so often in the sunset, watching the rose-coloured light glow, fade, and die upon the river. He returns from Florence. He had received her letter, that letter blotted with tears, entreating, despairing. He had received it, but he loved her no longer. A young Florentine who has sat to him for a model had bewitched his fancy, that fancy which with him stood in place of a heart, and Gertrude had been half forgotten. If she had a rich suitor, good, let her marry him, better for her, better far for himself. He had no wish to fetter himself with a wife, had he not his art always, his eternal bride, his unchanging mistress. Thus he thought it wiser to delay his journey to Brunswick so that he should arrive when the wedding was over, arrive in time to salute the bride. And the vows, the mystical fancies, the belief in his return even after death to the embrace of his beloved, oh, gone out of his life, melted away forever, those foolish dreams of his boyhood. So, on the 15th of June, he enters Brunswick by that very bridge on which she stood, the stars looking down on her the night before. He strolls across the bridge and down by the water's edge, a great rough dog at his heels, and the smoke from his short meerschaum pipe curling in blue wreaths fantastically in the pure morning air. He has his sketchbook under his arm, and attracted now and then by some objects that catch his artist's eye, stops to draw. A few weeds and pebbles on the river's bank 
a crag on the opposite shore, a group of pollard willows in the distance. When he has done, he admires his drawing, shuts his sketchbook, empties the ashes from his pipe, refills from his tobacco pouch, sings the refrain of a gay drinking song, calls to his dog, smokes again, and walks on. Suddenly he opens his sketchbook again. This time, that which attracts him is a group of figures. But what is it? It's not a funeral. There are no mourners. It's not a funeral, but a corpse lying on a rude bier, covered with an old sail, carried between two bearers. It is not a funeral, but the bearers are fishermen, fishermen in their everyday garb. About a hundred yards from him they rest their burden on a bank. One stands at the head of the bier, the other throws himself down at the foot of it, and thus they form the perfect group. He walks back two or three paces, selects his point of sight, and begins to sketch a hurried outline. He has finished it before they move. He hears their voices, though he cannot hear the words, and wonders what they can be talking of. Presently he walks on and joins them. You have a corpse there, my friends, he says. Yes, a corpse washed ashore an hour ago. Drowned? Yes, a drowned. Young girl, very handsome. Suicides are always handsome, says the painter. And then he stands for a little while, idly smoking and meditating, looking at the sharp outline of the corpse and the stiff folds of the rough canvas covering. Life is such a golden holiday for him, young, ambitious, clever, that it seems as though sorrow and death could have no part in his destiny. At last he says that, as this poor suicide is so handsome, he should like to make a sketch of her. He gives the fishermen some money, and they offer to remove the sailcloth that covers her features. No, he'll do it himself. He lifts the rough, coarse, wet canvas from her face. What face? The face that shone on the dreams of his foolish boyhood. The face which he once was the light of his uncle's home, his cousin Gertrude, his betrothed. He sees, as in one glance while he draws one breath, the rigid features, the marble arms, the hands crossed on the cold bosom, and on the third finger of the left hand, the ring which had been his mother's, the golden serpent, the ring which, if he were to become blind, he could select from a thousand others by touch alone. But he is a genius and a metaphysician. Grief, true grief, is not for such as he— his first thought is flight, flight anywhere out of that accursed city, anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river, anywhere away from remorse, anywhere to forget. He's miles on the road that leads from Brunswick before he knows that he has walked a step. It's only when his dog lies down panting at his feet that he feels how exhausted he is himself and sits down upon a bank to rest. How the landscape spins round and round before his dazzled eyes, while his morning sketch of the two fishermen and the canvas-covered beer glares redly at him out of the twilight. At last, after sitting a long time by the roadside, idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, looking as any idle, light-hearted travelling student might look, yet all the while acting over that morning scene in his burning brain a hundred times a minute, at last he grows a little more composed and tries presently to think of himself as he is, apart from his cousin's suicide. Apart from that, he was no worse off than he was yesterday, 
His genius was not gone. The money he had earned in Florence still lined his pocketbook. He was his own master, free to go whither he would. And while he sits on the roadside, trying to separate himself from the scene of that morning, trying to put away the image of the corpse covered with the damp canvas sail, trying to think of what he should do next, where he should go, to be farthest away from Brunswick and remorse, the old diligence coming rumbling and jingling along. He remembers it. It goes from Brunswick to Aix-la-Chapelle. He whistles to the dog, shouts to the postillion to stop, and springs into the coupé. During the whole evening, through the long night, though he does not once close his eyes, he never speaks a word. But when morning dawns and the other passengers awake and begin to talk to each other, he joins in the conversation. He tells them that he is an artist, that he is going to Cologne and to Antwerp to copy Rubens's and the great picture by Quentin Matsis in the museum. He remembered afterwards that he talked and laughed boisterously, and that when he was talking and laughing loudest, a passenger, older and graver than the rest, opened the window near him and told him to put his head out. He remembered the fresh air blowing in his face, the singing of the birds in his ears, and the flat fields and roadside reeling before his eyes. He remembered this, and then falling in a lifeless heap on the floor of the diligence. It is a fever that keeps him for six long weeks on a bed at a hotel in Aix la chapelle He gets well, and, accompanied by his dog, starts on foot for Cologne. By this time, he is his former self once more. Again, the blue smoke from his short meerschaum curls upwards in the morning air. Again, he sings some old university drinking song. Again, stops here and there meditating and sketching. He is happy. He has forgotten his cousin, and so on to Cologne. It is by the great cathedral he's standing, with his dog at his side. It is night. The bells have just chimed the hour, and the clocks are striking eleven. The moonlight shines full upon the magnificent pile over which the artist's eye wanders, absorbed in the beauty of form. He is not thinking of his drowned cousin, for he has forgotten her, and is happy. Suddenly, someone, something, from behind him, puts two cold arms around his neck, and clasps its hands on his breast. And yet there is no one behind him, for on the flags bathed in the broad moonlight, there are only two shadows, his own and his dog's, he turns quickly round. There is no one, nothing to be seen in the broad square but himself and his dog, and though he feels, he cannot see the cold arms clasped round his neck. It is not ghostly this embrace, for it is palpable to the touch. It cannot be real, for it is invisible. He tries to throw off the cold caress. He clasps the hands in his own to tear them asunder and to cast them off his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers cold and wet beneath his touch. And on the third finger of the left hand, he can feel the ring which was his mother's, the golden serpent, the ring which he has always said he would know amongst a thousand by the touch alone. He knows it now. His dead cousin's cold arms are around his neck. His dead cousin's wet hands are clasped upon his breast. 
He asks himself if he is mad. Up, Leo, he shouts. Up, up, boy. And the Newfoundland leaps to his shoulders. The dog's paws are on the dead hands and the animal utters a terrific howl and springs away from his master. The student stands in the moonlight, the dead arms around his neck and the dog at a little distance moaning piteously. Presently a watchman, alarmed by the howling of the dog, comes into the square to see what is wrong. In a breath, the cold arms are gone. He takes the watchman home to the hotel with him and gives him money. In his gratitude, he could have given the man half his little fortune. Will it ever come to him again, this embrace of the dead? He tries never to be alone. He makes a hundred acquaintances and shares the chamber of another student. He starts up if he is left by himself in the public room of the inn where he is staying and runs into the street. People notice his strange actions and begin to think he's mad. But in spite of all, he is alone once more. For one night, the public room being empty for a moment, when on some idle pretense he strolls into the street, the street is empty too. And for the second time, he feels the cold arms round his neck. And for the second time, when he calls his dog, the animal shrinks away from him with a piteous howl. After this he leaves Cologne, still travelling on foot, of necessity now, for his money is getting low. He joins travelling hawkers, he walks side by side with labourers, he talks to every foot passenger he falls in with and tries from morning till night to get company on the road. At night he sleeps by the fire in the kitchen of the inn at which he stops, but do what he will. He is often alone and it is now a common thing for him to feel the cold arms round his neck. Many months have passed since his cousin's death, autumn, winter, early spring. His money is nearly gone, his health is utterly broken. He is the shadow of his former self, and he is getting near to Paris. He will reach that city at the time of the carnival. To this he looks forward. In Paris, at carnival time, he need never surely be alone, Never feel that deadly caress. He may even recover his lost gaiety, his lost health, once more resume his profession, once more earn fame and money by his art. How hard he tries to get over the distance that divides him from Paris, while day by day he grows weaker and he steps slower and more heavy. But there is an end at last. The long, dreary roads are past. This is Paris which he enters for the first time, Paris, of which he has dreamed so much, Paris, whose million voices are to exercise his phantom. To him, tonight, Paris seems one vast chaos of lights, music and confusion, lights which dance before his eyes and will not be still, music that rings in his ears and deafens him, confusion which makes his head whirl round and round. But in spite of all, he finds the opera house where there is a masked ball. He has enough money left to buy a ticket of admission and to hire a domino to throw over his shabby dress. It seems only a moment after his entering the gates of Paris that he is in the very midst of all the wild gaiety of the Opera House Ball. No more darkness, no more loneliness, but a mad crowd shouting and dancing and a lovely debardeuse hanging on his arm. 
The boisterous gaiety he feels surely is his old light-heartedness come back. He hears the people round him talking of the outrageous conduct of some drunken student. And it is to him they point when they say this. To him who has not moistened his lips since yesterday at noon. For even now he will not drink. Though his lips are parched and his throat burning, he cannot drink. His voice is thick and hoarse and his utterance indistinct. But still, this must be his old light-heartedness come back that makes him so wildly gay. The little debardeuse is wearied out. Her arm rests on his shoulder, heavier than lead. The other dancers, one by one, drop off. The lights in the chandeliers, one by one, die out. The decorations look pale and shadowy in that dim light, which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps, a pale streak of cold grey light from the newborn day, creeping in through half-opened shutters. And by this light, the bright-eyed debardeurs fade sadly. He looks her in the face. How the brightness of her eyes dies out. Again, he looks her in the face. How white that face has grown. Again, and now, it is the shadow of a face alone that looks into his. Again, and they are gone, the bright eyes, the face, the shadow of the face. He is alone, alone in that vast saloon. Alone, and in the terrible silence. He hears the echoes of his own footsteps in that dismal dance which has no music. No music, but the beating of his breast. The cold arms around his neck, they whirl him round, they will not be flung off or cast away. He can no more escape from their icy grasp than he can escape from death. He looks behind him, there is nothing but himself in that great empty salle but he can feel cold, death-like, but oh, how palpable, the long, slender fingers and the ring which was his mother's. He tries to shout, but he has no power in his burning throat. The silence of the place is only broken by the echoes of his own footsteps in the dance from which he cannot extricate himself. Who says he has no partner? The cold hands are clasped on his breast, and now he does not shun their caress. No, one more polka if he drops down dead. The lights are all out, and half an hour after, the gendarmes come in with a lantern to see that the house is empty. They are followed by a great dog that they have found seated howling on the steps of the theatre, Near the principal entrance they stumble over the body of a student who has died from want of food, exhaustion, and the breaking of a blood vessel. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come That was The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. So she is one of those very accomplished women novelists of the Victorian period. 
And I think we've read stories by Amelia Edwards and Elizabeth Gaskell before. And she is of that kind. You know, these are women who earned their living by their writing. Quite often they had wealthy husbands anyway, but even if they didn't, they would have been pretty well off in their own right due to the success of their writing. Uh, And, you know, much deserved, I think. Anyway, let me tell you something about Mary Elizabeth. I'm not sure whether she preferred just Mary or Lizzie or whatever, but Mary Elizabeth, I'll call her, give her full name. She was born in 1835 in London and died in Richmond, Surrey, in 1915. Now, in those days, I'm guessing Richmond was a pretty little village in Surrey, but now it's a, a pretty expensive village, which is part of London. Um, and my friend Robin lives there, so um, I've stayed there a number of times. I was just speaking to him on Friday, actually. So um, Mary Elizabeth has written more than 80 novels, and the most famous one was uh, Lady Audley's Secret. And she could turn her hand to all sorts of genres. And she wrote a number of her sto- short stories as well. And a lot of them have um, ghost. She's actually quite a famous ghost story writer. I have read a number of her stories, but this is the first one we've recorded, I think. I think. There's so many now, I've lost track. Scandalously, when she was 25, she moved in with a man who already had children, who was already married. But his wife was actually locked away in a, in a mental hospital in, in Ireland. And they're in, like, London, really, so that's a fairly long way, especially in those days. Mm. He had children, and she acted as a stepmother to those children for 14 years. And then in 1874, they got married because his wife had actually died, and he was finally free to marry her. Uh, she had six children with him. Now, I'm not sure... I'm not sure of the timings, whether she had some other children, but it would have been a monstrous scandal if she did when he was still married. And he was a publisher, but he was also a property developer. And the interesting thing, her place where she lived now is a block of flats, apparently. And the streets round about there are named after some of the characters in her novels, apparently. So that's interesting, isn't it? So I think it is interesting. You probably know that I still work in the mental health field and... As an aside, at the moment, as the exclusive stuff I'm doing on Patreon and on the paid bit of Substack, we're doing Dracula. And we've just got to the bit where, well, yeah, Renfield has just escaped. And so, you know, I have a professional interest in the treatment of that. And uh, I I did my, when I did my master's a while back, I did about the history of, of committing people, sectioning people, as we call it in the UK now because we use sections of the Mental Health Act, so it tends to be called, although we don't, you're not supposed to call them that, you're not supposed to say sections, it's a bit slangy, but everybody does. The history of locking people away, if you want to know, goes back a long ways. First of all, in I only know about English law and the kind of descendants of English law, so sort of Australian-American, things like that. In Elizabethan times, Elizabeth I, that is to say 1500s, the poor law came in, and people who couldn't look after themselves became uh, vagabonds. And there was a lot of vagabondage, you know, at the time, due to social circumstances. And they, w- they would get locked away. Now, as time went on, there was a distinction drawn between the um, pauper lunatics, as they were known, and the rich lunatics. Because if you had... So there were two different systems. Basically, the pauper lunatics were thrown in the poorhouse and there were no separate... There was no treatment for them. The, the wealthy people, including the royal family and people like that, if they had somebody who suffered from a mental disorder, they would lock them away. They would just basically lock them away. And then there came a time when people set out um, private hospitals and private rooms to take in the paying wealthy 
mad people. And then there was this conditions were so awful that I think in the 1800s, 1890, I want to say, they brought in an oversight body. The Royal College of Physicians got the job of going to checking. I think it was slightly earlier than that. So this is about the time when we have these private madhouses, as they were called. And I'm guessing, I don't know whether there are any family connections in Ireland or of the husband or Braddon. Braddon sounds Irish, actually. Braddon in Irish means a salmon. So, you know, one of the words for a salmon. Yeah, there you go. All these things you get just listening to this. So anyway, enough of that. Let's talk about The Cold Embrace. So The Cold Embrace is a very accomplished story, I think. I think in form it's very accomplished. It's a very professionally written story. It, it, to me, it seems more like a folk tale or a, it's a morality story, certainly. And I think the theme of it is do not tell lies, do not swear by the law, you know, and then go back on them. Even if you're an, an arrogance and will be punished by the gods or the, the ghost will come back and haunt you. And that's a really common ancient theme for ghost stories. So we've seen that plenty of times, but you know, the, the rather unpleasant hero of the story who is arrogant and apart from being handsome and genius and all these things, he, get, he gets his comeuppance, you know, and that, that's an interesting thing as well, because in earlier times, beauty and truth and goodness were held to be the same thing. Certainly the Greeks felt that and the romantics uh, had that a bit as well in the 18, 18th century. But as we know, beautiful people aren't necessarily good people or nice people even, and this is perhaps this story here, very much like a folk tale. It, the characterization isn't very deep. These are caricatures, really. Also, I was reminded of Tim Burton's uh, Corpse Bride in the, particularly the last scene in the, um, this uh, masked ball with his domino one, which is like a cape and then the mask and all that to hide your identity, dancing with this young debardeuse, which is a young woman, uh, who bit by bit, as the night goes on, and you just, it would make a wonderful film, actually. This ball gets sparser and sparser till there's hardly anybody left. And she becomes, goes from being this living thing, person, beautiful young woman, to being a thing of skin and bones and, in fact, a corpse. So I thought, you know, it was very, very nicely, if people say predictably, but the, we, we read these stories to remind us of how we should behave. We already know. So in a sense, they are predictable, particularly the folktales. And she, the, the writing was delightful to read. You may have picked that up. I really enjoyed reading that. She uses a lot of actual formal um, rhetoric, rhetorical, the flowers of rhetoric. So she loses, uses a lot of anaphora. So she begins phrases and sentences with the same thing, time, and usually puts them in a tricolon. So she will use them three times. And there's a thing called an ascending tricolon where you, the first thing has like one syllable, not actually, but you know, the second has two and the third has three. And you notice these patterns. She does this an awful lot. And there are other patterns of repetition and alliteration. So there's quite a lot of, it's, it's a very, you know, she knew what she was doing. She was a professional writer. Okay. Yeah, just another thing to stay. And also the other, the thing that struck me was this picture of the 18th century. You remember she was born in 1835. So this is her grandparents' world. And it, these pictures of, I read uh, William Wordsworth's biography, and he wandered a lot around Europe by foot. So they, the people were wandering between these cities. They would walk and take days to walk, or they would catch the stagecoaches. This is what the diligence is. And these plied their way between the different cities and things like that. And 
obviously they went overnight and you slept in them. And of course, Amelia Edwards' Phantom Coach is of this. This is the era before the train. Later, so we have some ghost stories featuring stagecoaches. And then the next generation, we have the railways. There are some about barges, but they tend to be looking back retrospectively, like people like uh, um, old Tom Roll, who did, uh, we did one of his barge stories. But yeah, so stagecoaches are diligence. And this idea is very, you know, if you've read any Goethe or anything like that, as I say, William Wordsworth, this sort of romantic idea of traipsing across Europe with your meerschaum pipe. So I did, I did really enjoy that. The other final observation I want to make is, remember, she was born in 1835. M.R. James, much later than she, but he said, if you want to write a ghost story, put, set it in the past, not too far in the past, so there's no, you know, your readers can identify with it, but have either distance or time so that it's not quite every day, so it's easier to suspend your disbelief. And as I was writing that phrase in my note, in the notes, it was Tolkien said that, that was in his um, essay on fairy stories about, you know, the suspension, the, the willing suspension of disbelief. So all in all, a really good story, which I really enjoyed. Finally, my last bit is my call to action, as I call it. And this is just to say thanks very much for all your support. I think we've got 19 patrons and I think the Substack um, support is up to 36. So that's really good. And I really want to first and foremost thank those people for their financial support. I'm, I'm, I've got to tell you a little secret. Next month, March, I am going to reduce my working hours. So I just do three days a week. So I'm kind of hoping, and I've made a little bridge in that direction, that I can actually spend more time writing and doing this. I'm writing a lot at the moment as well. But that, that will emerge, the products of my writing, quite soon. That's it. Oh, yeah, coffee. If you, if you just want to say howdy and give me some coffee. Funnily enough, I bought some wild Ethiopian coffee beans today. And Sheila showed me how to grind them. Now, you might not think there's a lot to do to learn about grinding. And it did seem deceptively simple. But I'm, I'm very clumsy, man, you know. And I can mess pretty much. I just spilled a load of cream over the floor before. You know, I can mess a lot of things up. So I, probably it's best if, if I just buy coffee ready-made. So if you wanted to help that, I see how I segued into that, then, yeah, you can get me at Kofi. I, they probably pronounce it coffee. I don't know how they pronounce it. I've never spoken to them. K-O-F-I forward slash Tony Walker, no gaps, no dots. K-O-F-I forward slash Tony Walker. And you see my page. And honestly, people don't do this, but there's, there are um, free downloads there. And they are actually free. I think it's, I have to call it pay what you want. But actually, if you want to pay, pay nothing, that's cool, you know. There is a cost that, I mean, you know, I think I, I put one of my begging emails out on Substack. And somebody, it actually, it made me kind of sit back and think, oh. Because somebody explained that they were having a hard time financially. They really enjoyed the stuff, but they were having a hard time financially. And that is true for an awful lot of people in these times not just financially, people are having a hard time, full stop. And, and I hope the stories light them up. So first and foremost, absolutely. I'm not starving. I've just eaten some uh, cherries, cherry, frozen cherries with cream, some of which I spilled. So, you know, if, don't feel bad. If you want to buy me a coffee, that is great. I, this is my daughter pinging me now. 
If you want to buy me a coffee, that's great. But if, if you can't afford it, man, dude, see how up to date I am. Chaps, you know, that's absolutely, totally fine. And she always does this ping, ping, ping. And I mean, I love it a bit, you know. Uh, this is all about um, her Instagram, uh, not Instagram, her Etsy page. She's, um, she's a very talented artist, Imogen. She, we talk, we've been talking about things she can do. She's got a whole bunch of stone circles and her and the hunters and stuff uh, that she does as lino cuts. So she's very excited about her next project. That's why, you know, she does about seven pings in a row. Anyway, I ramble on. I hope you're all well. Soon it's going to be spring in the Northern Hemisphere. So I'm really sorry about your Antipodeans. But um, we're, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> it doesn't stop. We're looking forward to the spring. I've even seen some snowdrops. going to be some daffodils soon. Uh, it's going to be lighter nights. It's going to be just we're turning a corner, I hope. Okay, peace and love to you all. Namaste. See you next week. I was just editing some of the ums out of that piece and two things occurred to me. One, why don't I just put my phone on silent? You already thought of that, didn't you? And this next piece of music is The Hair and the Moon from their Widow's Weeds album and it is called Under the Rose. Well, the rose was the European flower of mysticism and secrecy, equivalent sort of in mysticism to the Eastern Lotus. Both of them have lots and lots of petals, so I don't know if that's anything to do with it. But of course, particularly secrecy in the West, and so there's a Latin phrase, sub rosa, which means under the rose, which means in secret. And little known fact, the British Security Service, MI5, has a rose as its coat of arms because of that very reason, because it's in secret. But I think this piece by The Hair in the Moon, Under the Rose, is absolutely beautiful. <laughs>